Are you locked into manufacturing your stuff in China? COVID-19 offers a ticket out of there. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. China may have lost some of its luster over the past few years as a source of cheap and reliable manufacturing, but many companies remain dependent on that country for the bulk of their products. Now, however, there's an opportunity to break the single sourcing trap. Consider it a massive get-out-of-jail-free card. Those are the words of Jacob Shapiro, founder of Perch Perspectives, who joins me on the podcast to talk about long-term changes in sourcing that might result from the coronavirus pandemic. When it comes to cheap production at massive scale, there's no real alternative to China. But that doesn't mean companies shouldn't be diversifying their sourcing strategies. With all the attention being paid to supply chain risk, there's no better time to put that plan into action. And the first to make a move will have a big advantage over the competition. So here is my conversation with Jacob Shapiro. Jacob Shapiro, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. It's good to be with you. Our conversation today is about thinking beyond the panic, and you have laid out some really interesting points and themes for us to be thinking about in that regard. And in a recent report of yours, to which I will link in the show notes to this episode, the first thing you talk about is the challenges faced by the Chinese government that had to release information in a way that was not not their usual way of doing things. And now it's a question of putting the lid back on that information. Just what position is the Chinese government in now as a result of having to divulge or not divulge, for that matter, the details of its own exposure to COVID-19 and the coronavirus? Yes, China is in a tremendously difficult situation, and it's a tragic one for the world because the the most maddening thing about COVID-19 and this entire pandemic was that it was entirely preventable. And if China had felt secure enough or open enough to communicate what it knew about the virus initially, it's possible that the WHO or other countries might have been able to create measures that would have been able to stop the spread in its tracks. Unfortunately, and it's actually, it's not hard to understand why China was feeling so insecure. When you go back a couple years and look at the African swine fever outbreak in China, which decimated basically half of their pork industry. When that happened, the United States used that to try and get more trade concessions out of China, to get them to buy pork at a higher price. So China was reeling from that kind of awareness and decision. It's already a type of environment that tries to emphasize social cohesiveness and and not rocking the boat too much. So when they had these reports of some kind of new virus in Wuhan. And they had these doctors that were going on Chinese social media saying, something's wrong here. Is this SARS? Is this a new virus? What's going on? China decided to clamp down and they threw those doctors in jail and they made them recant their stories and they wouldn't let them out of jail if they didn't recant the stories. And then for the next month, while they were telling the WHO and anybody else who would listen, that there was no human-to-human transmission, they had everything under control, they were actually buying up masks and buying up protective equipment and doing all the things that allowed them to kick the virus very shortly. That, in a nutshell, is kind of why China did that. As far as going forward, I think China has actually done a decent job 
in terms of its messaging. And overall, China seems to be in a good position. The quicker they can get their economy going again, the quicker it's not going to have to deal with those questions. Of course, China's economy is exposed to everything that's going on in the world, and the rest of the world is still reeling. So navigating how it's going to get the economy going again is going to be the most important question because that's what's going to allow them to cut the conversation off at the knees. Meanwhile, the lesson that traders are learning, U.S. importers, and for that matter, I guess, European importers too, is the danger of relying too heavily on China for sourcing materials, production, finished product, and the like. So they have now, I would think, embarked on a quest for alternatives to China. How's that going? This is one of the questions I get from clients and from people who are interested in these type of topics. And they usually, and I'm glad you didn't frame the question this way, but usually the way I get this question is, tell me what the next China is. Tell me where I need to reorient my supply chain or I need to start sourcing differently. And my response is always, there is no next China. The phenomenon of China in the world economy was unprecedented and it was unique. You are not going to open up a single source with a billion people who are willing to work really, really cheaply with a government that is willing to throw all of its resources into creating the infrastructure and political incentives for multinational corporations to be there. It's just not going to happen. So in a weird sense, we're having to go back to the way the world was before 1991 or 1992. Folks are going to have to find alternative sources of supply. They're going to need to worry about the resilience of their supply chain. And they're going to have to think not necessarily in terms of comparative advantage or in terms of the cheapest cost, but also in terms of political reliability. When you're dealing with a country or when you're dealing with a foreign market, what are the political risks that you're facing and what is the way that you can produce something both efficiently and reliably in terms of your exposure to political risk? Sounds good on paper, but at the same time, companies do love it when countries dangle in front of them the prospect of cheap labor. You still have Vietnam. You still have Malaysia. You still have, well, to a lesser extent, Mexico. You maybe even have India. So might companies not learn the lesson of the long-term view that you just laid out and continue to go for the low-price manufacturing at their peril? Entirely possible. We had the lesson about single sourcing in the 2008 financial crisis. We had the lesson again around the 2011 Fukushima a nuclear disaster in Japan. And now we've got this 2019-2020 COVID-19 pandemic to really nail it home. Any company that is not able to get its head out of the sand at this point and understand that things are going to get a lot more tenuous in dealing with China, I can't really help them very much. I will say that one of the things I'm concerned about is that COVID-19 is accelerating some of the hostility and the competitiveness in the U.S.-China relationship. And I think it's taken some of the opportunities for cooperation and for pragmatic engagement off the table. Now, I say all that. That's not to say that China is just going to start kicking everyone out. As I alluded to when we were talking about their control over information, their economy isn't where they want it to be yet. They still really need foreign investment. They are still dependent on global trade. But I think once China is able to get to the position that it wants to be in, in regards to a few key industries, like let's say semiconductors or sort of moving up the value chain, that's going to turn off very, very quickly. And what people thought were reliable political relationships will turn out to be very much on China's own terms. So I, I actually think there is potential and opportunity for U.S. companies and other companies to still do business in China in the next couple of years and maybe even throughout the decade. But if you're not preparing for when that switch is going to flip, you're in for a rude surprise down the road. And the nice thing about COVID-19, if we can say that there is a nice thing to it, is it's a wake-up call. It's basically 
have you prepared? It's a perfect test case because we saw what happens when China goes offline or when the supply chain shuts down. Companies need to be ready for that. They need to have their alternatives in place rather than scrambling for when that supply chain gets cut off, whether it's for natural disaster or political risk or any of these other factors. But that issue you describe, it didn't really start with COVID-19, did, did it? In the last several years, geopolitical issues have intruded upon the China-United States relationship and the ability to manufacture cheaply and easily, bring stuff in without duties or tariffs. Maybe companies should have seen the writing on the wall back then. Even without COVID, the straining of relations between the U.S. and China should have indicated the need to start looking elsewhere for sourcing, correct? Look, hind- hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? And it's very easy to say, looking right. back, that things were that way. Yeah. Yes, as far back as 2004, it was very clear that China was going to start prioritizing its own domestic efficiency and its own domestic production of key strategic resources. And you saw it in 2004 with some of the economic plans that they disseminated. You saw it in the 2008 financial crisis, how they reacted to that. You saw it when Xi Jinping was elevated to the position of president. Nobody, not even in China, he was not the front runner to be Chinese president until suddenly he was because he was the compromise candidate and he has turned out to be far more aggressive and far more ambitious on pushing China's future ambitions than a lot of outside observers thought. I think the thing that we can say, even though some of this was unclear, even in 2004, 2008, it could have gone either direction, the warning signs were there. It's not like I could have credibly told a company that you need to pull out your supply chain from China based on those initial signals that we had, but they were definitely the sparks to start asking the question. And I think the companies that are doing best today are the ones that were already moving to some of those other countries you alluded to, and COVID-19 is just allowing them to accelerate plans that they'd already developed because of these geopolitical tensions. Let's bring the discussion closer to home and talk about some of the near-term risks that exist with the global economy and the U.S. economy, especially with regard to debt and liquidity, which are issues that a lot of economists were warning were going to come to roost even before COVID-19 came upon us. There were warnings that a global recession was in store simply because of the mounting amount of debt. What are we facing right now in terms of being able to recover from this horrible recession that we're just about to fall into. The key sentence to take away, if you take away one sentence from what I'm saying, it is to think of COVID-19 not as a disruptor in and of itself, but as an accelerant. We already had a bunch of trends and rising levels of debt was one of them. The decoupling with China was another one. And COVID-19 is just rushing them along. I think in the short term, the debt issues and the economic issues are actually not that serious. Even though United States debt has ballooned, and it ballooned, unfortunately, during a period of, I mean, not just during a period, during the longest period of economic expansion in U.S. history, the debt was continuing to go up. The United States is going to be spending more and more, and it's going to be borrowing more and more against the future. Now, the bright side of this is the United States can afford to do it. The United States is still the richest, most powerful country in the world. It's still the economic epicenter of the global economy. That said, I worry that we've gotten to the point of no return, where the United States can't actually pull back from that spending eventually. And when you start getting debt levels where other countries are doubting the dollar or the reliability of the U.S. government on being able to pay its debts, when you get conversations like the one where Senator Mitch McConnell is saying maybe some of these states should just default, that starts to undermine the reliability of the dollar and the trust in the U.S. system globally. And that's when things are going to start to flip. Now, I don't think that happens mm-hmm. for 5, 10, 15 years. We're sort of talking in that time frame. But again, you can see the seeds of it right now. It's just not sustainable 
the United States and for U.S. companies to maintain the current status quo, spending at the levels that they're spending at. Yeah, well, you're talking mostly there about sovereign debt, but what about corporate debt, where a lot of debt has been built up over the past, companies buying back stock, borrowing heavily because of low interest rates, saddling their balance sheets with just a whole lot of debt, and now it's going to have to be paid back at some point. So at the corporate level, what are the challenges there? Are there dangers ahead? Yeah, it's a chicken and egg scenario. Does the willingness of the country to take on sovereign debt encourage corporations to do the same thing, or is the government just copying corporations? Look, we've seen this especially in the aerospace industry. The aerospace industry is being decimated right now because air travel is down and because demand basically evaporated overnight. But they're also being decimated because instead of actually building resilience in their supply chains or building buffers for times where things weren't so good, they were doing exactly what you just mentioned. They were buying back stocks. They were trying to return money to their shareholders. And this, I think, is one of the most interesting things that's happening with the United States and China with the global economy in general, what's in the best interests of nation states is not necessarily what is in the best interests of the multinational corporations. I think some of the problems that we were already seeing manifest in geopolitical tensions, in terms of internal tensions that were creating these populist leaders in different countries around the world was because the multinational corporations want one thing and they want to return value to their shareholders. And the governments or the communities want different things. They want higher wages. They want stable employment. They want political stability. And for a period from roughly about 1991 to 2008, those things were going together in tandem. Since 2008, they've basically diverged. And that's one of the reasons I think you're seeing so many irrationalities present in the system. Mm -hmm. And also the idea of corporations parking their profits offshore to avoid paying local taxes. That's definitely a a perfect example of how their goals definitely uh, don't intersect with those of government. Well, yeah, and and there's a fundamental incoherence, too, if we just take the United States as an example, which is that even today, what multinational corporations want the U.S. government to do is to use its economic leverage against China so that they can have market access to the Chinese economy. When you're looking at companies like a Boeing or a Starbucks, they basically built their future projections on being able to sell to that massive Chinese market. When if they were listening to someone like me telling them 10 years ago, the Chinese will get rid of you just as soon as they can. They may be willing to let you have access to the market right now, but it's not a viable long-term thing. The interesting thing there is that U.S. President Donald Trump comes in 2016 and he starts using tariffs and tariffs are a protectionist tool. They don't actually get you more market integration. His base is thinking more about protectionism and protecting the U.S. economy, reshoring, bringing manufacturing home. And that's simply not what the multinationals want. They want more market access to China. They want to do more, whereas the politics and the actual tools the United States are using are more of that protectionist bent. So even in that limited way, the disconnect you can see from U.S. policy, U.S. workers and manufacturers, and what the multinationals want in the long term, you can see how those things start to tie up in knots. Okay, let's go forward, though, with some advice for the future, because you have a couple of tips for companies as to how they can become planning for what you call a strong post-COVID-19 strategy. One is, as we've been discussing here, is to plan the transition away from China, to move supply chains elsewhere. To what extent do they have that freedom and ability right now? How should they be doing that, and where should they be going? There's no better time than the present. COVID-19 is a massive get-out-of-jail-free card. If you've been single-sourcing, if you've been depending too much on China or single-sourcing too much, look, you're basically going to have the economic disruption anyway. You're never going to have a better opportunity to take a step back and think strategically about the future. I keep telling clients, this is a crisis. You have to get through the crisis. You can't not engage in crisis management, but it is also an opportunity. 
I guarantee you the companies that are going to be doing best five, 10 years from now are the ones that took a deep breath and decided, okay, what major changes can we make right now so that five, 10 years down the road, we're better equipped to do it. And I basically, I, I tell people to sort of go through a four step checklist. The first thing is look yourself in the mirror and say very honestly, is there any universe in which what I produce or any stage of what I produce, could it be considered a strategic resource from a national security perspective from anyone in my supply chain? And you really have to stop and use your imagination for that. Because if you had told folks that medical masks were going to be an issue of national security a year ago, they probably wouldn't have listened to you. They would have said you were crazy. Mm -hmm. The second thing, and this is almost, it's intuitive and folks think that they've done it, but they actually haven't when they pull it back. You've got to map out the supply chain. And I don't just mean the first tier suppliers. You need to go first tier and second tier and third tier as far down as you can get, get a real clear sense of what that map looks like. If you need to integrate some blockchain technology, there are all sorts of technology tools you can use to map out the supply chain that we didn't even have 10 years ago. So that's the next step. The third thing is do a political risk audit. Do not assume that every step on that supply chain, things are just going to be fine or that your relationships are fine. Governments, policy folks, they tell you what you want to hear. They don't actually tell you what's going on on the surface. So you need to make sure once you've mapped out that supply chain, you go through every single point and you have a sense of what the political risks are and how sure you need to be that you have reliance in the system. And then last but not least is you can't forget the consumer. You can't forget that someone eventually is going to have to consume your product. And I think ironically, we're going away from this idea of globalization and the world market to, I think, smaller blocks or smaller networks of more like-minded countries. You're not just going to be able to sell out into the world. You're going to have to really think about, okay, politically, what countries am I going to be able to sell into? What countries are going to have a political relationship with my government such that it's not going to cost me more than it's worth to try and get into a really hard to access market? Once you go through those four steps, then you can kind of decide, okay, how many alternatives do I need here? What kind of resilience do I need to pull in? Do I need to completely discount this and begin a sort of three-year walk away from this particular supply chain or over-reliance on this supplier. But unless you stop and do that forward-thinking process now, you'll be trapped. You'll be hostage to whatever the next crisis is, and there will be another one. It's not going to stop with COVID-19. But you've got it's got to be a dynamic process, right? Because these po political situations change all the time. You can't nail it down at, at a point in time and freeze it. Absolutely. This is what makes political forecasting and political risk such a difficult space and why I'm trying to shake things up in this space. Because the way it works right now is that folks think that if they put in the time and they just do a forecast or they do the hard work once, that, okay, they've got the answers and everything is fine going forward. And the reality is that forecasting and analysis and political risk tools, they're exactly that. They're tools. They're tools that have allowed you to identify the pressure points and to think about the problems. Nobody, nobody in the universe predicted that a disease was going to jump from a bat to a human being in a wet market in Wuhan in November 2019. And that was going to change the entire global supply mm. chain, right? But I guarantee you that there were companies, and I've worked with companies, that thought through, okay, what does a major disruption from my supply chain look like in case of a natural disaster? What does a major disruption in my supply chain look like if for political or economic or any other reasons the Chinese government shuts off access? Those companies 
are actually already moving to the next stage. They put in their crisis plans and they're thinking about how to capitalize on COVID-19 rather than crisis management. And they, like you are saying, they're constantly fine-tuning. They're forecasting not so that they have a perfect picture of what's happening five years down the road, but so that when that unpredictable event comes in, they've already done work. They know how to change their operations in a smaller way rather than having to recreate the whole thing full sale. I don't hear you proposing reshoring back to the United States of manufacturing as an easy answer to all of this. How do you feel about that as a, as a solution? Listeners won't like this answer, but it really, really depends on the company. Uh, there's no one-size-fits-all solution there. If you remember, the first step I asked is ask yourself if you have a strategic resource. If you have a strategic resource that is crucial to national security, yeah, you might want to think about reshoring. If you're in the biotech sector, if you are in any way, shape, or form related to space technology, satellites, any of those sorts of things. If you're related to connectivity, I'm thinking in terms of big data, 5G, telecoms, communications, we're already seeing that market get reshaped. Yeah, you might want to think about reshoring. You might want to think about what things you need in order to make it feasible for you to do that. If you answer that question, no, if it's not going to be a strategic resource, if it's not going to have the eyes of both the U.S. and foreign governments on it, you have some more options. And reshoring probably isn't the right answer there. Then your answer is, well, think about supply supply chains that are leaner, that are shorter, that are more politically reliable, and that are diversified. So sprinkle a little bit here in India, have a little in Vietnam, do some Mexico. South America's got a lot of opportunities, and that's a lot more sure environment for U.S. companies to be operating in. So I hesitate to say yes, reshoring, no reshoring, entirely dependent on the specific company. There are scenarios where it's good, scenarios where it doesn't make sense. Never any easy and automatic answers, but you certainly have helped us to understand the complexities and some of the opportunities that exist for companies that are looking to set up strong post-COVID-19 strategies. Jacob Shapiro, I want to thank you so much for being with us today to lay all this out. Thanks very much for your insights. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. That was my conversation with Jacob Shapiro of Perch Perspectives, talking about long-term strategies for reducing risk in supply chain sourcing. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.